Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following is a presentation of the Matt Talk Podcast Network. Welcome to On The Mat. I am Kyle Klingman of TrackWrestling.com, joined by our own Billy Hoyle of Wrestling, Andrew Hamilton, also of Track Wrestling. Countdown is, what, 11 days now that when we record this? And hopefully when you're listening, you're close to watching the World Championships live on Track Wrestling. It's the thing to do. Super important that you do this because it's just a core principle of any coach you follow, you want to stay current and you want to stay current on the top guys. Actually bothers me a little bit when people are wrestling fans and they kind of check out after the college season and they don't keep up on this great world championship team that we have coming. Stay current, Andy. Stay current. I am current, Kyle. I know you are. You're the most current guy I know. You Billy are, Hoyle. Yeah. Do you know who that is? That's uh, Woody Harrelson's yeah. character in White Men Can't Jump. Absolutely. What's the connection there, Kyle? I just think Woody Harrelson would be a good choice to play you in a film. Think so? Yeah. He's a little older than you, but I think that young cheers Woody Harrelson. Like you call me like a hayseed? <laughs> no. What you're saying? I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that era, he would be pretty good to, to play you in a movie. And I'm a fan of Woody Harrelson, so it's a compliment coming from me. I hope you like him, because I think he'd be a great choice. He was my favorite Cheers character, I think. He's fantastic. Who's yours? Oh, Sam Malone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guys, but it's also... They were, it was like a like seven-way tie for first. Yeah. such a great show. I never liked Diane, though. No. Nope. She really bothered me. Really like nails on me. a chalkboard, right? Yeah, just I, I never, <laughs> never wanted to see that materialize. Kirstie Alley really took it to the next level, and glad that the show went that direction. But it's hard for you though. You're a Yankees fan. You were okay with the Red Sox deal, or I, uh, th- that's my all-time favorite show. I've watched like what is there 200 episodes? I think I've watched them all probably at least twice. What's your favorite episode, Kyle? It is the one where. Norm gets his dream job of being a beer taster and he just kills it. <laughs> Absolutely my favorite. I've watched that one the most where he 
hugs the what do you whatever you call them the beer canister and says honey i'm home and hugs it and i love that episode it's awesome that's a good one yeah really good one cliff, one? cliff on jeopardy oh, for me geez. that's right that'll never be topped for me that's right that was a uh, that was some iconic moments there <laughs> i hope people the kevin McHale when they counted the oh, bolts yeah, and that's right kevin McHale was on boston there too. garden yeah that one was a pretty good one was too. it wade boggs on one I think so. Was he? Okay. So a few there. But hey, if you're listening right now, watch the World Championships. Again, this is a special time and it just keeps getting better. You have the access to do it. And we have this opportunity to see 30 of the best domestic athletes. But as we've gone along, there's so many international angles and international wrestlers you want to watch, whether it's Sajulayev on the men's side, or you could just have a plethora of Japanese women that you want to watch, or my personal favorite on the Greco side, Frank Stabler. Can't wait to watch that dude. It's going to be so much fun to see if he can win, what is it, four now? I think he's won three world championships, and he's making the move down to an Olympic weight so that he can be ready for 2020 Olympic Games. And with this year, we keep talking about it this way, is that this year will feel different because the top six or top five technically qualify the weight for the Olympic Games. So a lot on the line, more than just medals. You're qualifying your country for the weight. And the goal is to go 30 for 30, but it'll be really interesting to see what weights don't make it and then how the qualification process will work after that. Who will well, you qualify. can't go 30 for 30, Kyle. 30 well, weights? There aren't 30 weights in the Olympics. Well, okay. 18 for 18. Good okay, catch there. there. Go. It, in my head, it should be 30 for 30, but you're right. 18 for 18, and then those those weights will be even more competitive than normal. So looking forward to seeing how that gets played out. And as always, you just want to see who gets crowned world champions. This is the, the toughest tournament in the world. I think tougher than the Olympics. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Can't wait to see what uh, what happens there in world team titles on the line. We are still thinking about the world team training camp. We have a, a full lineup set now. Zane Rutherford is officially on the team and it took quite a process to get there. And Zane is the guy right now. He won a, a two to one match. Yanni did not score a technical point. It came off of a challenge, a failed challenge. And I'll tell you what, Penn State and Zane, they know how to scout a match and, and do a great job with that. Just like felt like Kyle Dake did when he won is he, he did. They did a great job of scouting and, and figuring out a great game plan. Give credit to Zane came up with a great game plan. Yeah, really did a good job, but not letting Yanni get to his legs much. Yeah. Never really got a great lock on a leg. One shot that he. Probably his best shot that he had was the one that created the flurry where Zane, you know, got to the corner and tilted him for two and could maybe make the argument that that could have been two and two. But it went in Zane's favor. And man, I thought there would be more than three points scored in that match. But I would have never thought. That the two to one, but it was one of those exciting two to ones and a lot of action. Yeah, it was. And I'll tell you, man, just the, the interview you had with Yanni at the Olympic Training Center. I, I just love listening to the guys interviews and he's just so 
thoughtful in what he says, and it's just so matter of fact, and it never comes across arrogant. I just like listening to the guy and what he said before the match and your interview with him, I thought was really good just in how you raise each other's levels and yeah. how you make adjustments. And it's kind of this chess match that these guys are playing right now. Wrestling capitalism yeah. is the phrase that he said that his dad says. Never heard that before. I had neither. And it, it does a, a good job of explaining what that series was because those guys went back and forth and, just think about that match compared to the first round of Yasardo, where what was it nine to five was that match, and a, a lot I think of so, maybe nine three something like that. Yeah, a yeah. lot, lot of scoring there, and and just a lot of scrambles and action and points on the board. And this was the exact opposite of that from a scoring point of view, but from an action point of view, you left uh, satisfied with the match and, and glad you watched. As we move into just a preview of what we have coming up here with the 2019 World Championships, of course, we want to see everyone from the United States do exceedingly well. But I think, especially on the the men's freestyle side, there's just some some really special storylines here. And I think it starts with Jordan Burroughs going for history right now. John Smith is the current king six in a row 1987 to 1992 won every world championship and olympic title during that time jordan burroughs has a chance to tie that this year and i don't think he's thinking about it one bit i think he's just trying to be jordan burroughs the guy that went out there free and easy of course it's in the back of his mind but i think if you can get that guy that can just be that uh, guy that can pull the trigger i think he's just going to be a, a really tough out in a really tough weight class you know, we talked back in July out at the Olympic Training Center, training camp out there when I got a chance to visit with him then. We talked about wrestling with freedom because he talked about that at Final X. He used that phrase, if I can wrestle with freedom, good things are going to happen. Uh, and I asked him, what does that mean? How do you get yourself to that point? And one of the things that we've seen out of Burroughs, one of the characteristics we've seen is how you give the guy 10, 15 seconds and he's needs to get one score and he's lights out almost every time we see him come through in the clutch. And he said for him, that is wrestling freedom when he's down and he has to attack. And one of the challenges is for him is how do I get to that point more often? How do I get to that point where I'm stringing together a bunch of holds and just a, a sprint, a 15 second sprint that, manifests itself in points how does that happen more often throughout the match you know how do you he said ideally he's doing it once a minute or uh, you know somewhere along those lines where it's happening a little bit more often and instead of being in those matches where eight second burst on Sitikov's part results in a step out with half a second left He's not in that position because he's up three, he's up five, he's up seven. He's putting a match away with the tech. I think Jordan is certainly still capable of going out and widening the gap on all of the top 74 kilo guys in the world. But will we see him with his foot on the throttle the way that we have in the past? That'll be the question. We'll call this a tale of two champions part two. Of course, you know how much I liked your story from last year comparing Helen and Adeline Gray and where their trajectory is. But I, I would say that in a, a 
real way that Adeline Gray and Jordan Burroughs have kind of had a, a path that is unique in that they both went to the 2016 Olympic Games. Neither came away with a medal. And as we say that now, you look back going into that, those were the two where you said, those guys are locks. Absolutely locks. You just look at it. From my vantage point, I would have just said, those those are the two that you're picking. They're proven themselves. They're world champions already. And here we are, one year away from the Olympics, and they both have that opportunity to make some history. Both have a chance at five world championships, which would set the all-time record. John Smith has four world, two Olympic games. But as we look at Adeline Gray and her story, you can go back to listen to our interview from last week that we posted with Adeline Gray. But what a what a unique journey that she's had. Takes 2017 off, wins it last year. Now she's really going into this stretch run and to see what Adeline Gray can do. I think those two athletes are really our number one storylines, Adeline Gray and Jordan Burroughs, to see what they're going to do. And they both have a unique approach to it, both similar in weight class. But if you have two people to really keep your eye on, it's Jordan Burroughs and Adeline Gray at this point. A lot of people you could keep your eye on. How about the Snyder Stad Jalayev thing? Well, round three, potentially. That's that's there. And uh, I, I guess I'm just a history buff. I want to see what, what happens with this and see where they are in the uh, in the scope of things as far as just U.S. history and and where that shakes out, just to see what uh, what these two marvelous athletes can do and how many more titles they can add to their resume, whether it's another medal, whether it's another gold medal. I'm just fascinated with with what's going to happen there. You felt there were locks in Rio, huh? I really did. Wow. As far as uh, as far as medals, or at least getting in contention, I didn't think that they would uh, they would lose out like that. I mean. I would probably put Jordan Burroughs as, as the guy where it's like, man, here's a guy that what he had only gotten a bronze at 2014, yep. one in 2015. At that point, he was, what, four for five or three for four? I'm just trying to do the math in my head. That would have been his, you know, he'd already won four at that point. Okay. So, I just felt like he was he was there and ready to go and... You, you get on that peak Olympic cycle. I just felt like Burroughs was solid. You just saw the, the dominating run that Adeline Gray had the year before at 2015 Worlds, and she just really dominated everyone. So, yeah, I just felt like they were not necessarily locks. Maybe that's strong language. Of course it is because you're not going to be that way in the Olympics. But, boy, I thought they were the prohibitive favorites, and neither of them did it. But I, I love the redemption part of this. Uh-huh. I love that they've kept going and they've both had world titles since then. I love that. And that that's, uh, they've proven everyone wrong. And that's where Helen's at right now, right? Yeah. I mean, where's she going to go with this? I mean, her legacy is secure. Three-time sure. world and Olympic champion. She doesn't have to do anything and she's going to be one of the faces of women's wrestling. But what's next for her? And I value health. I mean, we can compare this to the Andrew Luck situation, and you probably have a little bit more knowledge on Helen's situation than I do, having just talked to her. But what's the what's the value of health? She's her legacy secure. She's set for the rest of her life as far as her place in history. What more does she have to prove? Well, she doesn't have to prove anything, but she wants to wants to prove that she can get out and be an Olympic champion second time. And that's going to be the 
to me, one of the most fascinating storylines of 2020 is her quest to get healthy again and get back to the level that she was in 2016, 2017 as arguably the best women's freestyle wrestler on the planet. And it's so interesting how this plays out as we're talking about just redemption stories and where Adeline Gray is right now and Jordan Burroughs is that you have Helen Maroulis in 2017 absolutely throttled everyone. I mean, you could just say arguably it was the most dominant performance in U.S. history across the board for her weight class. Just she did everything right there and it was a better domination performance than the year before in the Olympics injured in the first match goes in with a a concussion and just doesn't look like Helen of 2017 doesn't even compete this year. Yeah. Hurt her shoulder. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Rotator cuff and labrum and all sorts of stuff. Just a rough deal in 2018 and sits this year out. And what does that look like for 2020 and the, and the recovery process? But Helen's one of those. You're right, man. It's, uh, it's someone you want to see in the fold because it makes the storyline and, and going into the Olympics. That's that much better. Do you have any information you can share with what she said or any thoughts that she's provided on this? Yeah. So I'm writing a piece on her for this week. And it'll be out by the time this show comes out. So go to trackwrestling.com, look for the writing timepiece for this week on Helen. But to summarize, just a lot of interesting stuff. Number one, she's down in Stillwater. That's where she's going to base her training is at Oklahoma State. She talked about that relationship with John Smith and how that evolved. Then also just kind of what she's been up to the last year and One of the things that was most fascinating to me was her talking about after she won in the Olympic semifinals, how she told, uh, I can't remember if it was a trainer or got to go back and transcribe that part of the interview. But in the back, she said, I'm going to win the Olympics. And this is before she wrestled Yoshida at this point. But she said, I don't know if I'm ready for the responsibility that comes with that. And that was, to me, one like... One of the big takeaways from that interview that was one of the most fascinating parts of the interview was, I I don't know if I'm ready for the responsibility that comes with that. And just a super candid answer. And she talked about all the things that she's done since then, about what potentially life could look like after wrestling. But, uh, you know, she talked about going over to Greece and working at a, a refugee camp and how that affected her how that shaped her thinking and some of the things that she wants to do with her future. And Helen's always got such a unique perspective on things. I really appreciated the the time she spent to give me an update on what she's, she's going through and what she's been up to and looking forward to cranking out that piece on her. And possibly one of the, the great parts, even looking at last year when she lost in the first round was just her perspective and wanting to stick around for the team instead of being mad and going mm-hmm. off in a corner and hiding that piece of her saying that it doesn't do anyone any good. And I loved that she had that perspective and that foresight to be there for the team and show support. And I think that says a lot about Helen. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, so many things about that interview were so interesting last year in Budapest. You know, where I think we all kind of wondered, is this it for her? 
Yeah. But especially when you start talking about brain injuries and the awareness we have around the concussion issue, like never before, but I think she's gearing up for another run in 2020 and trying to become a multi-time Olympic champion. Winning multiple Olympic gold medals is a, is a super rare feat. And we'll see if Jordan Burroughs could possibly do that next year. And then Helen's in a position as well. We have not mentioned even after all of this, who our guest is, and it is Bill Zadick, 2006 world champion. He likely won't be at the world championships. And we're going to delve into why a little bit on the interview, but he's our USA wrestling national team coach for men's freestyle. And we're going to chance, get a chance to talk to him about the freestyle team and what's going on in his life. So you want to make sure you stick around for that because Bill always has good things to say, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. Always enjoy our conversations with Bill. Yeah. And had a chance to see him at the, Olympic Training Center and just see him in his environment. And he's only three years into this, but not a bad run right now. Win the world in 2017, runner up last year. And once again, if you're following the sport, don't take it for granted. We've told young John Broughton, who will be on the ground for track wrestling, doing the video montages, and he's done some great work that this hasn't just fallen out of the sky. He gets to, to go to a world championship and see how great the United States is doing. But there were some really lean years there for a oh, while. Yeah. And just embrace this time where you can pretty much guarantee we're going to have some medalists and you just have some of our best teams on the mat right now across the board. And as we think about it, let's give Greco Roman some love. We talked about this last week. Dude, those interviews... The Joe Rao going around, Pat Smith. I'll tell you what, I replayed that Pat Smith imitation of Jay Robinson. I don't know, conservatively 50 times. Yeah, I got you topped. Yeah. Well, you do. You should because it went on your Facebook or your Twitter feed. So you better have watched it more than I have. But man, that dude is, uh, he's spot on, man. And, And yet you said that. Brandon Paulson might have a better one. I didn't say that. I haven't okay. seen it, but that was one, you know, somebody I think in the, I think Momir in the comments on our Facebook page said that Brandon Paulson is the J Rob impersonation goat. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we just, we'll see. I mean, we'll just get we'll him on for a segment. Give dude. him an opportunity, right? Yeah. I Show don't know, man. His skills. Pat Smith is tough to beat on that. Pat does so many things right. Like the voice, just the the little things that Jay says, he nailed those. And then even the eye, the right mm-hmm. eye. Nailed it, man. Yeah. Just go do yourself a favor. If you've heard Jay or you know about Jay, make sure you go check that out. The great part is we were able to find a clip, too, of Jay saying, not exactly what Pat said, but Almost verbatim. Yeah. Just, you know, your definition of hard work, my definition of hard work, miles apart. Yep. That was a, that was a special, (laughs) that was a special invitation. So do yourself in favor and check that out. Be sure to check out all of the world championships starting on September 14th, live on track wrestling. 
We'll get to Bill's Attic unless you have anything else you want to add about the worlds, Andrew. I don't, other than just looking forward to getting over to Kazakhstan and it's going to be a long haul over there, but we'll be there in a week and looking forward to it. We're looking forward to our guest. Let's bring in Bill Zadek. Our guest today is the USA Wrestling National Team Coach for Men's Freestyle Wrestling. He was washed up three times before he won a world championship in 2006 at the age of 33. It's Bill Zadek. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're we're great, man. And I'm right. You were washed up three times or was it four? Yeah, yeah, I don't know, man. I lost track. Okay. It, was, it was too many. I thought you said three, so I'm just going off what yeah, you said. I, I probably did say that. Yeah. How are yeah, things? Yeah, I was counted out, but, you know. Everything going good for you, Bill? Just mail in the rankings. That's right. Once uh, once you're ranked first, you can just count on winning it, right? Well, we'd like to count on it, but uh, we still got a tournament to go, and that's probably the most fun part anyways. How much fun is this for you to be involved at a level like this where you're with the top guys? These are the 10 best guys in their weight class, and you get to oversee their training and try to get them to their goals. It has to be a fun process for you. Yeah, yeah, it's very fun. Um, You know, it's a sport that I've loved since I was a young kid, and and, uh, there's a lot of intrigue in in different facets of the sport um, that fascinate me. And I think fascinate others as well. Um, we have a bunch of great athletes. And, and so uh, after transitioning from being an athlete into a, uh, one of the national staff and then working my way up through, um, it's, uh, it is fun. It's exciting. It's rewarding. Um, you know, your level of understanding at having been an athlete, um, it, it puts a very high um, value on what these guys are committing and what they're doing to get where they want to be. And so, um, there's a lot to it, you know, uh, a lot of reward and a lot of satisfaction when, when you see them, uh, achieve at the highest level, it's incredible. And, uh, there's some tough times with it too, right? Because of that level of commitment, because of the sacrifice and the the effort that a lot of people put into it. Um, uh, when you don't achieve, it's it's pretty disheartening. But you know, on an individual basis, that when these guys, if they're not necessarily hitting the exact performance goal that they want, that they're doing something that's valuable to their life and that they're going to take with them, and it's going to make them a better human for having done it. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's hard pill to swallow or hard, hard, uh, philosophy to understand when, when you, if you don't get your hand raised, but, um, when you look back at all the great wrestlers that, uh, that we know and that we, you know, you interact with, um, it's pretty universal, that sentiment, um, you know, we're all super competitive though. So, uh, I think we'll look back and wish that we had all those titles, but, uh, you know, when you get them, it's pretty sweet. What's the value of having a slow burn for the sport? I think of your dad and him taking you across the country in a van. You guys went all over the place just to get competition. And I have to think that was just part of having fun and enjoying the sport, even though it's insanely hard. What do you feel yeah. like was your journey in the sport where you just continue to enjoy it this to this day? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the things that you reference and the you know stories that you and I have discussed, you know, offline when just as, as friends, um, you know that those times, you know, there was when my dad was in the car business, he'd put us in a van and we had a coach, uh, Floyd Vaughn and, and some other guys, uh, uh, the Campbell family, Denny Campbell and his sons that were like older brother figures to to me and Mike. And, uh, you know, there was a pretty elite group of young kids. Um, and it was fun. It was crazy, right? It was, I mean, I think one year we put, um, close to 30,000 miles on one van, a brand new van. And, uh, you know, we just drove all over the country. We, we drove to Boulder and Russell in the Western States Regional. We, we drove to Antioch, California, wrestled in that one, and then drove from there, drove north to Portland and did a camp for two weeks, then drove back through, um, stayed overnight in my hometown, um, while my mom and a couple other mothers did laundry. And I think we spent maybe two nights there and then drove all the way to Indianapolis, Indiana, and then back to, uh, back then the junior nationals was in Cedar Falls and I was too young to even wrestle, but the older guys in our group, we went and watched them compete. And, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, that was kind of typical. And so it was a little bit crazy, but we were obsessive and we just were loving what we did. And, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie that was built in those the group of folks. And some of them I don't see very often anymore. And, in, in uh, I actually did a clinic a couple of years ago out in Virginia, and one of the guys, his name is John Bellier, that was from Laurel, Montana, was a good wrestler, and uh, he's now living out in Virginia, and uh, he came, he knew I was going to be there. He saw that advertisement for the clinic or whatever, and he came up, and we just, it was awesome to catch up. It was like we hadn't uh, missed each other at all, and it's probably been 35 years since we were in that band together, but... Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, formative experiences that that you're going through, and I think the thing that we learned, um, our group of athletes, and what I try to uh, continue to do and, and help our athletes, our current senior level guys, and and our developmental guys, and I mean, it permeates my my philosophy, whether I'm a coach or a fan or an athlete. Um, is just learning. And my father and the other coaches in the area were passionate, but they, um, they knew they didn't know everything and, and being kind of geographically isolated in Montana, we had to work really hard at getting next level information. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have a parent and other coaches and people around me that were willing to, uh, do that work and, and help me and help my brother and help our club and, and, uh, so I, I think, um, just by going through it, you kind of learned those things. You understood that it was a learning process and, you know, we traveled to Portland, Oregon and, you know, I started going to camp there when I was in, I was eight years old. It's the first time I went and then it was a two week camp. And by the time I graduated high school, I was maybe spending four or five weeks a year out there. Um, and then we had we had Randy Lewis come to Great Falls, Montana, and spend a week and train and teach our club. And K 
Kevin Darkus and Mike MacArthur and Charlie Hurd and just a number of elite level guys who were competitors at that time. Um, and it just instilled in me a, a, a hunger for learning and information. Joe Russell is part of your staff, and what an interesting story this is. Here's a guy that really was the guy that was going to do great things, the guy that was going to be on senior world teams and Olympic teams and had everything available at his disposal. And then an accident happened. But you saw something in the guy to bring him on staff, and it seems like a lot of people like him, a lot of people are drawn to him. What is it about Joe Russell that made you want to bring him on the Team USA staff? Um, Well, I think you pretty much outlined it. I mean, Joe's demeanor is such that he just gets along with a lot of people. He's a, he's a bridge builder and uh, um, he's a super intelligent guy. I mean, a lot of people don't know, but he's, he's got a degree in law and and so he could have chosen to be a lawyer. Um, But I, I know um, because he was actually part of that group. Um, Back in those days, I mean, he wasn't probably in the van with us, but he lived in Portland, Oregon. So he was, when I was a young kid, he was one of those guys I was looking up to, like, man, if you want to be a great wrestler, you want to be like Joe Russell. And, um, you know, a a freak uh, incident that took his competitive years away, but it didn't take his mind and it didn't take his heart and his love for people and for the sport of wrestling. And so I know uh, just, having known him for a long time and watched him in a testament to Jay Robinson to, to honor a full ride scholarship to bring Joe as he was trying to build that program in Minnesota. And as the story goes, Jay said, well, you know, just to have a guy like you and have your mentality in our room is going to be an asset. And, uh, you know, uh, Jay's, Jay's a guy that, uh, you know, has an impeccable, uh, reputation in our sport and, in, you know, kind of the rest is history. Joe went there and didn't really start, but spent 20 years there, 20 plus years building that program, became one of the top assistants, um, and, uh, was an integral piece of, of building Minnesota wrestling into a, a national powerhouse. And so, um, Joe is, uh, he just brings so much to the table. You know, he, he just, his passion for the sport, um, I think he and I share a similar passion and level of commitment or obsession or whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, I love coming to work and, and seeing his face and talking to him about wrestling. I mean, it's exciting every day, and he's he's uh, brings a lot of energy and enthusiasm and positivity um, to our men's freestyle program. As of right now, you will not be attending the 2019 World Championships because your wife is pregnant with your first child. What goes into making that decision, Bill? You know, it's uh, on the surface, it looks like a pretty hard decision. And, and it is hard because of all the things we've already discussed, the level of commitment, the amount of work that goes into it in seeing these guys um, accomplish the goals that they've set before them. And when you think about that stuff, but you always, we always talk about wrestling as a family and we, we, we as a group, we as a whole, uh, the sport of wrestling, um, pride ourselves in having that strong family commitment. 
And uh, so this is one opportunity where I can really uh, show where the rubber meets the road. And uh, of course, I want to be there and I'll be doing everything I can to uh, to make that happen if possible. But um, when you when you really sit back and and take a look at what are the most important things to us on this earth and my faith is number one and my family is number two and wrestling is number three. And, uh, my wife might argue that order sometimes, but, um, this is an opportunity for, for me to show as a leader, uh, and for her, um, that she knows that my commitment to her and to our family is unwavering. Um, and the, the other side of it is that, uh, I really trust these guys. I mean, I've seen the work they've done and the, you know, the, the cliche about the hay being in the barn. Um, the hay is in the barn. And, and I remember, uh, you know, when I was in high school, actually, I wasn't even in high school. I was probably in eighth grade and I was watching the junior nationals and, and Ray Brinzer was wrestling. He wrestled the whole tournament with a Gumby doll sitting in the corner. <laughs> And uh, as his coach, right? And, and there's some history, you know, there's a story behind that. And he was, why he was kind of, he chose to protest that way. Um, and, and Ray and I being teammates, I've heard the story. So uh, maybe that's setting you guys up for another podcast sometimes. It's, it's actually a really good story. But, um, you know, it really doesn't matter if I'm in the corner or not. I mean, it, it, shouldn't matter uh you know we as coaches we like to think it does matter and it probably does to a very uh to a smaller degree and and i think there's a a great quote by uh uh tony dungy that says head coaches get a lot more blame and a lot more credit than they deserve and uh so i i just am trusting in these athletes and uh and their level of commitment and preparation um and of course my staff and our staff and all the personal coaches that and the, their level of commitment that the college coaches and the RTC coaches are going through, um, which makes a big difference, right? It's a huge, it's a huge help. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, I mean, if everything goes smooth and, and there's a smooth pregnancy and a healthy mom and a healthy baby, you know, everybody's going to look back and say, well, you, you, you could have went, you should have went. And, uh, but if there were any kind of complication or trouble, I don't know that I would, one, I wouldn't be able to live with myself and I would be no good to anybody over there and I wouldn't be able to get home quick enough to to be there for my wife like I need to be. And so ultimately, um, I guess it's a, it's a faith decision and, and a family decision that um, my number one job on this planet is to be a leader of my family and to her and, and to our unborn child. So... So that's kind of sums it up. But what's the due date at this point? Uh, she's due on September 20th. So um, second day of uh, competition for men's freestyle. So, um, yeah. So you mentioned that all 10 of these guys have their own personal coaches that are going to be there with them. What has been your main responsibilities at world championships in the past and, and who will fill those roles? Yeah, so you know, it's great that we have the the involvement of the of the 
personal coaches at a way higher level. You know, there's way more compliance as far as them participating in the national team programming than there there used to be, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, even even six or eight years ago. And so, um, you know, I guess at the World Championships, uh, you know, I – Typically, I try to sit in the – there's kind of two chairs, right? And in the last two years, um, they've changed the way the protocol is where there used to be two coaches sitting in a corner. Now there's one, like, mat side and one a few feet back. And uh, I try to let the personal coach – I mean, it, it all comes down to what's best for the athlete, and, and we've – ask the guys and talk to them over the summer. What's the coaching team that you want in there? And what we like to do is put, um, if there's a personal coach that's going to be there then, and has participated in the summer program. So there's consistency and continuity and understanding of the rules and all that stuff. Um, the personal coach will sit in the front chair. Um, they certainly know their athlete, uh, extremely well. And then, um, our national staff, sit back and manage more logistics, watch the time, watch the push outs, watch the criterias and things like that to be, um, I guess most effective and most efficient if there's, if there's a need for that. And so, um, at the tournament, um, it's, we have a game plan that we try to, um, execute, you know, so logistics, everybody understands what the plan is. There's, uh, you know, everybody knows who's in whose corner and who's helping who and and uh where they're getting their water and where they're getting their recovery and where they're getting their nutrition and and everything that's happening in between matches um with a twenty minute uh wait time. Um some of those matches, especially later in the day on the first day, those matches come around pretty quick. And so um just having a plan and executing um, a rehearsed plan and an understood plan so that all the athletes know they don't have any questions, which allows them to uh, focus on what they came there to do, which is compete. Um, and all the co- personal coaches know, all of our national staff know. And uh, so hopefully when we walk into the arena, we're, we're a well-oiled machine that uh, we all know what we're supposed to do. We're not um, overwhelmed by the environment or the magnitude. It's just kind of thinking about our jobs, which helps reduce pressures and, and anxieties and just, you know, stare at the guy's hips and figure out how to score the next points. You mentioned that coaches get too much credit and maybe too much blame, but just let's take your personal experience. Would you be where you are without Gable or Terry Brands or Tom Brands and these people that were part of your career and your tra- trajectory? No, no, nobody would be anywhere without those people. I mean, it, you know, especially in a combative sport, right? It, it, uh, very often it's the, it's the guy that gets his hand raised. that's getting all the credit, uh, you know, as a competitor, but what would he be or what would she be without their training partners, their coaches, their parents, um, driving them around at, you know, youth sports and, and getting them, uh, you know, starting the fire, uh, that passion early in life, right? Like, uh, you know, 
there is a huge commitment by the individual, of course, right? They have to, they have to take all that information and they have to actually do something with it. So they, they, they do deserve a lot of credit, but, um, you can't do any of that alone. And, uh, I think that's something that we try to, uh, stay connected with with our team and our athletes and and, uh, and when I say our team I don't just mean our 10 guys I mean not even our national team you know which is the 30 positions I I like to use the word team meaning all of our senior level athletes that are competing that are training in this room that are coming to camps that are competing internationally they're all elevating um, each other and so uh, yeah I mean it, it's an individual sport and you got to make a huge commitment, but, um, you're not, you're not getting there by yourself. That's for sure. As far as in match adjustments, are there times or can it happen? Of course it can happen, but can you think of a time where in the corner at the period break, the coach gives advice and they make an adjustment and it turns it around and you're able to win a match because of the adjustment, how often does that happen? Um, I'd say it happens. It's it's often enough that it's important. Um, there's a responsibility by us to be on the top of our game. Um, you know, does it happen every turn? Probably happens every tournament. Um, by I would say it probably happens. You know, multiple times every tournament. By if you're looking at one team, right? And that's that's why you know, I guess our sport is set up the way it is because those coaches want that interaction and it's good for, you know, it's good for the athlete to sometimes you're seeing things that the athlete isn't right. And, and so, uh, I can remember some times where, uh, you know, it's made big difference, big differences, but there again, the athlete gets a lot of credit too, because they're the one that actually has to execute the, the, the change. So um, I'll give you one example is a 2017 World Cup. Um, my first, well, my first World Cup as the head coach, second major assignment because right after I was um, the head coach, we had the, we had the, the um, World Championships, uh, the 2016 World Championships for 60, uh, 61 and 70 kilo. So Three months later, February, we're in we're in Iran, and we're in the finals. And David Taylor is competing against uh, Hassan Yazdani, who's the reigning Olympic champ. Of course, moved up. Huge match, huge match. I mean, there's uh, we're in this small arena um, in Kermanshah, Iran. It was uh, they said it holds three thousand, and they told us there were probably five or six thousand people jammed in there. Regardless, it was so loud you could barely hear yourself think. And uh, Yazdani, of course, is very good, and he's um, jamming some underhooks and, and it's causing David some trouble. And, and David was actually doing a reasonable job clearing the underhooks, but um, he had gotten pushed out to where he got uh, two cautions, right, in, in, in the first two minutes. So we finally get to the period break, and uh, – David, you know, is Jeff Buxton and I in the corner at that time and uh, said, you, you got to open this thing up. And, and 
you know, told him that he's doing a good job clearing the underhook, but you got to stop it from coming in and then open this thing up and make it a little more of a gunslinging battle. Um, and, and David, you know, I could see the switch flip in his eye and he went out and, uh, masterfully executed, but, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty amazing match. He really started creating some scrambles and opened up some things and, and ended up wearing him out to where, uh, he kind of was in on the winning takedown. I mean, there's still more than a minute left, but the the lead takedown and just bear hugged him right to his back. And Yazdani just laid there and, you know, he just wore him out. So, um, David, David really did it. I mean, you know, you can say all the great things you want to say, but if the athlete can't go out and execute, um, you know, it's all for naught, but he did, he did a wonderful job. I think it was important that um, coaches could recognize what was happening and, you know, tactically in the match and, and was able to present it to him in a way that he understood it. And, uh, yeah, pretty exciting. I mean, you, you could hear, uh, you know, you couldn't hear yourself think. And then a moment later after David pinned Yazdani, you could have heard a, you could have heard a, a pin drop in that arena. It was just like sucked the, air out of everybody all at once. I mean, just 5,000 people audibly gasp. So, um, that's a pretty, uh, pretty vivid memory in my mind. And it, it was a pretty awesome moment for uh, USA wrestling and for David. Bill, you go to the world championships. You've got 300 plus contestants from other countries there. And I imagine that some of them, you got quite a bit of history with some, you have no history with at all. What goes into scouting? for the world championships and how extensive is it for opponent per opponent? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to know what's going on in the world and what's, what's happening. Um, especially for us because, uh, because of social media, because of technology, because the United States is on the tip of that spear. Um, our information is out there way more than everybody else's. So we're by far the, the uh, most scouted and easiest country to watch. Um, and, it, it, you know, there's a responsibility, you know, we feel to promote our sport, and that's part of it. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that, uh, you know, as we get out there more and as we're um, more available, um, it's, it's, easier to, it's easier to study. And so, uh, yeah, we need, to, we need to know what's going on, and we need to know what's happening both um, – in major trends by by countries or teams that that have idiosyncrasies and all the way down to um, you know specifics on our our major competition. So it's it's really important. If you would, Bill, I just want to take a, a little journey on how athletes get paid. If we think back to the 1970s when it was all amateur and you couldn't get paid, and if you took a coaching job you would have to give it back because you'd eliminate your amateur status. Just take us through what you had to experience in 2006, if you don't mind sharing how much you got paid during those years and what the pay is now and how much better it's gotten. Yeah, well, huge, huge shift, right? And uh, um, the, the trend, I mean, back, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was guys were, you know, basically they would compete 
in the eighties, it shifted a little bit where, you know, a guy like, like coach Gable, for example, he graduated, he won a world title, won an Olympics, and then he started coaching because that's where the professional avenue and outlet was for our sport. And, you know, he, when I came to school in the fall of 91, Gable was still wrestling and pretty much still the king of the room. And he was in his forties, you know, I mean, his 47, 48, something like that at that time. And, uh, so he, he could have clearly gone on and wrestled a lot more, but, um, there just wasn't a, a way to support yourself and do that. And so you had to coach, right? And then it progressed a little bit in the, in the eighties, you know, you had athletes that stuck around for more than, more than one or two cycles. And, you know, I mean, obviously everybody's hero, Dave Schultz was around for a lot longer than that and, and was still competing. But, um, you know, unfortunately probably financial woes or led to some of the things that, that caused the, our loss of Dave to our sport. And, uh, so now when you fast forward to where we're at now and, and, you know, when I was competing, I moved from Iowa. I lived here at the training center. Um, I was, you know, basically one of the reasons I moved here was, uh, I was a little bit older than most people at that time. As you said at the beginning of this call, I was by some people's standards, I was probably washed up once or twice before that. And, uh, but I knew that I, I know what I needed to do. I knew how to train myself. I just needed an environment to do it <clears throat> the way I needed. And, uh, but I also needed to support myself where I was a assistant coach at Iowa for a couple of years. When I moved here, I was, um, had, I lived rent free, which was a huge benefit. And then I was able to train freestyle full time and not being divided in my mind between coaching and, and my responsibility to my to my boss and into a a job that you love, right? You love the sport of wrestling, so you get coaching as an assistant coach, and you're pouring into the younger guys and you're helping them. And it, it's very easy, but um, you know, wrestling has been uh, compared to a jealous lady many times, where you really need to be selfish in regard to getting what you need, right? Doesn't mean selfish as far as a human characteristic. But you need to be focused enough to get exactly what you need. And as the level of competition has risen in the world, um, I think it's exceedingly difficult to do that and coach. Um, and so the onset of the the change from the club model, the local sports club model, to the RTC that's created an economy around our senior level athletes, and it's reconnected our um, grassroots with the Olympic movement. There's, you know, young kids like, um, well, Kyle Snyder, for example, when he was being recruited, um, he was asking, well, what is your RTC offer? Who do you have training there? Right. And that's a massive shift from, you know, even just a few years prior to, to his graduation. Um, when, you know, the biggest names in the sport were, were maybe, Brent Metcalf and and Jake Herbert and they were NCAA champions, right? And hadn't gone on to their senior level careers. Now um, we have some great heroes, and so kids. The RTC has allowed um, the reconnection of that base to our Olympic dreams, 
and it's also allowed our senior level athletes because of that it's given our senior level athletes an economy to where they can uh, they can train full time they have access to great coaches and great training partners and they they can earn a livable wage um, to support themselves and their families and, and so um, you asked about the financial piece and um, you know I think the year before I won the world championships in 2005 I think my tax returns were like 6800 bucks and the year I won the worlds it was like 48000 and that's with you know all my bonuses and uh, USOC bonus USA wrestling bonus um, club bonus I was an ASICS athlete back in those days. Um, but now, you know, these RTCs, these guys are getting, if you're, you know, been on a cadet or junior world team, maybe you've got some NCAA accolades and you have Olympic aspirations, these guys are making 40, 50,000, 60,000 and, and potentially more, um, you know, with, with performance incentives, you know, kid like Kyle Snyder, I don't know exactly what Kyle's making, but, um, you know, he, he's, making enough that he can focus on himself, support he and his wife while she's getting ready to go to med school and train at the level he needs to train, which is a super huge commitment as we've discussed. Um, it's, it's a massive shift and it's a monumental step forward for our sport. And as, uh, we all are kind of, uh, the junkies, right? We're the guys that we're bought in no matter what you and I, and, and, uh, you know, Kyle and Andy and I, um, and probably most of our audience. And, but we're always looking at football. We're always looking at basketball. We want to be like them. We want to be like those guys. And, and with as far as the economy and the resources and the opportunity to elevate themselves through the sport. And this is a, this is a step. This is a big step forward for these athletes. I mean, they're making, you know, three, four, five times what, what, just a few, a few quadrennium ago, uh, the athletes were making. And so it's, it's a, it's a wonderful step. It's a wonderful asset for our sport. It's going to get, you know, there's, it's certainly not perfect, but there's a lot of good, a lot of good. And, uh, we need to be diligent about keeping it healthy and strong. What's the Russian incentive to win a gold medal of the world in the Olympics? You know, uh, of course, I don't see their pay stubs or anything like that, if they have pay stubs. Um, but throughout the years, kind of what you we've heard anecdotally is that to win a world title, they maybe somewhere around 500000 U.S. plus cars and apartments or houses. And then uh, in an Olympic year, it jumps to a million plus, you know, cars and houses and status and other things. You know, they have a... I think they actually in their in their uh, sport federation they have a retirement um, like a pension program for their athletes. If you win a if you win a world title, you get a pension, and if you know as it compounds, you get that pension goes up. So um, they're you know they have a different funding model than we do. I, I don't know that USA Wrestling you know maybe we'll be in a position. I'd like to think someday we could be in that position, um, but not being a five zero. 503 in a nonprofit um, is a little different than most of the rest of the world who are funded by by government funds. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of money, 
it's a lot of money when you're talking about one title is a half a million or a million bucks. That's a that's a big deal, you know. And the stewards of USA Wrestling, they understood that, and they've committed to the Living the Dream Metal Fund, um, which is which is a step in the right direction, and you know, hopefully, we'll continue to grow. But um, you know, that's that's out of uh, generous people who've been very successful financially that understand the intrinsic motivation of security and, and providing a livelihood for yourself and how powerful that is. Um, and so the 250 that, that, uh, they've been so generous to give, um, you know, it's, it's a positive step. Can you share that national team model, the one through three, what number one makes and then two and three, what that, what that incentive is for each of those guys? Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, well, I don't know if I'm gonna get in trouble for this or not, but it's not much, right? It's not much. It's it's what we can give. Um, we give a thousand a month as the base stipend for the one, six hundred for number two, and three hundred for number three, and that's the base. And then there's um, performance incentives on top of that. So, uh, you know, you, you go to a, you go to a competition and you. You, you know, win a ranking series event or you win the continental championships or you win a world championships and there are, there are bonuses on top of that. But the base stipend, it's, uh, it's, it's supplemental. You know, it's supplemental. It's not something you could survive on by itself. And so, um, you know, an, another powerful reason for the RTCs, um, you know, it's just, it's a tremendous asset to our entire sport. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that we, um, it's not the only reason why we're doing well, but it is a significant reason. Um, and the health, you know, I think it's impacted college wrestling and you got some really talented young kids coming up that, um, have in, been impacted by, uh, uh, RTCs at their local institutions and those college coaches and the RTC coaches that are doing the work, you know, um, they deserve a lot of credit. Bill, so much talk a month ago at the NWCA convention about the RTCs and the possibility of moving away from them and going to back to the local sports club model. What, how would that change things from your perspective? Well, um, it's obviously not something I would be in favor of. Um, it, and I think the language that has been put forward from some of the conferences is very dangerous. I think um, it was maybe uh, haphazardly put forward maybe out of good intent um, to clean up some things. But, but um, most of us understand that when they're, you know, in the NCA, when there is sports specific language, um, there's absolutely no wiggle room. And so um, the language that was put forward would have basically severed the ties of any uh, institution, any institutional coach, any student athlete and any PSA with um, any kind of uh, national governing body, um, any kind of developmental program. Um, it, I mean, it was really, really restrictive. So very dangerous. Um, I mean, it would have been a, you know, if I was if I was trying to kill the sport of wrestling, that would probably have been a first start. It would have been a good start. Um, I, I thought it was. Uh, and I think some things are being adjusted now that um, hopefully they are. Uh, I know our office is, is working very hard at doing what we can to 
um, clean up some of the perceived uh, issues. You know, maybe there's some things around recruiting that, um, you know, I think are problematic. But I think getting some some greater um, clarification and interpretation around those, so that we keep the assets of it and the the positive um, concepts that it's putting forward and, and what it's doing for the sport of wrestling, and and uh, while eliminating the the detriments or the, or the the loopholes, right? It's I, I know that. Uh, you know, hearing Rich and, and being here as assistant when Rich and Zeke implemented, came up with a couple of ideas and implemented the RTCs, you know, it really was, the intent was um, to give our Olympic hopefuls access to partners and coaches. And um, secondarily is to development, the, the development of our grassroots. And uh, really wasn't intended for some of the recruiting stuff that you hear about, um, and I think that's getting tightened up and, and hopefully it will. Um, I know, you know, I actually just before this, I was on a call where we were discussing it. So, um, it's been a lot of talk, been a lot of talk, uh, about it all year. And, uh, it's an important, uh, thing to get figured out. Uh, and, uh, I think we're making some headway. I don't think, uh, we're done and I think we've got a ways to go, but, uh, hopefully, all interested parties and all the key stakeholders and influencers can come together to see the health and strength of the sport of wrestling, not, not just NCAA wrestling and not just USA wrestling. Um, and I know that anything that comes out of my mouth is perceived one way or, or uh, biased because of the chair I sit in. But if, if I were, you know, coaching Great Falls High School, I would feel the same way because I love the sport of wrestling and I can clearly see the advantages of uh, some of these young kids, you know, a kid like, kid like Yanni, a kid like Dayton Fix, a kid like Gable Stevenson, and, and many, many others um, who, who have access to next-level information differently than I did growing up in Montana. Um, you know, those guys were going to be great wrestlers no matter what. Would they be where they're at as soon as they are without that information? I think that's what you got to look at. And, and uh, it, I mean, it makes college wrestling super exciting, right? I mean, you have every year you have multiple freshmen in the finals and winning titles, and and uh, you know it's it's pretty exciting to see it. Bill, such an unusual year for putting this team together. I mean, a month out, you still have twenty percent of your lineup that's unsettled. What challenges has that presented? Yeah, well, the, the obvious challenge is that you don't have your team all together at, um, during your training camps. And so, um, you know, those, those guys, uh, that are still in contention, you know, they, they actually have done a great job, uh, participating in camps and being here because, uh, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. So when you get all of, these people that, that we've been talking about, these hundred athletes and in a room together, um, they elevate each other, right? There's a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge in that room that can be shared uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis and on a corporate level when, you know, we're coaching. Um, but uh, when they're, even though they've done a very good job, they're still focused on making this team, right? There's a step 
that has to be taken before they can really focus on the long term or I guess the intermediate term of winning a world title. And, and uh, you know, I think wrestlers were very good at um, accepting challenges in uh, this team has done it very well this year. It has been challenging to not have uh, those two weights decided in, in, until, you know, obviously until just yesterday, but uh now that now that we have, we're we're you know looking full steam ahead, and uh, we'll we'll uh, I think we'll be excited to I think the the process and the the hurdles will have refined those people um, to perform at their best at the World Championships and and uh, but we'll look forward to not having that situation next year so we can we get our team decided you know hopefully in early April and in. Uh, be focused on competing against the rest of the world and elevating the six athletes that make our Olympic team to the top of that podium in Tokyo. Um, we'll, we'll be excited to uh, be focused on that. Bill, we are well under a year away from the start of the Olympic games on NBC. And yep. with that in mind, do you feel like all of your waking hours are like a sprint to the finish, that there's a, a sense of urgency that's different than other parts of the year? Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty important stuff, right? I mean, all the things we've talked about, you know, how you grow and develop and the effort and the commitment and the family and, you know, your college and your coaches and your RTC and all of that, um, it, it adds, uh, it adds to the experience. It adds to the significance of what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and the, uh, responsibility with which you're doing it. So, um, yeah, you know, but I mean, we, we definitely have been planning and doing things and getting our team set up, um, for Tokyo, but, uh, we have to be focused on this year in Kazakhstan because this is our first major step. Of course, we want to go win individual titles and we want to win the title as a team. Um, but we also want to get those weights qualified. And this is our first opportunity to do that and really set ourselves up for the position that we'd like to be in Tokyo. So um, it, it will be somewhat of a sprint. The athletes will definitely need their downtime to recover and, and, and re tool and, and reset so they can uh, train and, and uh, stay healthy and, and be focused like they need to be when the time comes. But uh, yeah, it's going to come around quick too, right? It's, it's uh, with the world championships in the end of September and opening ceremonies in early July or excuse me, late July and competition in early August. Um, you know, it's going to look like a, a nine month year, Almost instead of a instead of a, a normal year where you're you know really looking at twelve months or eleven months maybe if you take downtime so yeah it's it's uh it's coming quick I actually talked about that with our team when we were in Pan Am's uh, in Peru we were actually competing on exactly one year out from the days that we would some some people will be competing in Tokyo so interesting um, coincidence I guess. What do you remember being a, an athlete in that Hawkeye wrestling room and seeing a young Andy Hamilton come into the wrestling room to cover your sport? I do remember seeing Andy in there a lot, and uh, I thought it was cool, right? I mean, uh, the fact that we have a, a, 
a journalist covering our sport was a cool thing. You know, we didn't get much attention. I mean, Iowa got a lot more attention than most places, but growing up in Great Falls, Montana, when, uh, you know, we had a big dual meet, a huge dual meet, we might have 300 people in the stands, right? Otherwise, it was parents and janitors and crickets. Um, so when you have, like, journalists coming in to, to do interviews and promote the sport, um, it was a great thing. And I remember seeing Andy, not not quite a it wasn't a trench coat, but it was a very business-like um, gray jacket. <laughs> Is that true? Like a pea coat? Probably. Yeah, it wasn't a pea coat though. Pea coats like has got two rows of buttons, right? It was like a it was like a wool tweed, you know, nice looking jacket. You came in looking all business. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's awesome. Maybe it we- was probably it was probably a while before he wandered over to talk to me because you know I was just some hayseed from Montana that nobody knew, but you, you were washed up twice by that point. So he had yeah. no, no uh, use yeah, for you. By the time I graduated high school, I was two of those washups were already happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, Hey, if it works out, w- the best scenario is you have a healthy baby. It happens before the world championships. You're on good footing and then you can come over, but we respect your decision and in your line of thinking, thinking, thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks for sharing yeah. your thoughts, and we really wish you all the best. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for doing what you guys are doing. Appreciate it. We appreciate you, and we will look forward to the 2019 World Championships in Kazakhstan. Can't wait. This is bigger and better than ever. We think about 06. I remember my dad and I were following your tournament online. We couldn't even watch it live, and now it's the thing to do. And love the access, love the opportunities we have, and we're in a great spot in the sport. Yes, we are. Onward and upward. We got a lot, a lot of good things to build from. Bill Zadick, thanks for your time. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That was Bill Zadick, USA Wrestling National Team Coach for Freestyle. Got a chance to pick his brain, Andrew, about quite a few things, including why he will not be attending the World Championships at this point and beyond, but. There were a lot of insights there that I think our listeners will like to hear about. Yeah, Kyle, always great insight from Bill. Always enjoy our conversations with Bill. And certainly there's a lot of great info in that one. Wish that we could see him over in Kazakhstan this year, but certainly understand his decision and wish him and Samantha nothing but the best. Great insight and just an opportunity to learn about how far our system has come. And I think that's what I'll take from this the most is just how far we've come. He gives some insight on the RTC debate. And I thought it was a really pragmatic approach to it and just explaining why he likes it. And you just got a, another take from what he sees on the USA wrestling side. Of course, the, the college side is going to be different, but he admitted too that he's coming at it from a different angle, but the success we've had, I think you have to point toward the RTC program and what that looks like in the next five years. I think it is going to change. I think it has to change just based on a lot of the interviews you've done and a lot of the comments you've had. But what that looks like in the next Olympic cycle remains to be seen. Well, I think there's got to be some common ground that's found, right, that meets the needs of both sides. There has to be. And I, I and just, can be. Yeah. And it's just it's hard to 
not like what's happening right now. And I think that's maybe the fear for some people is that this is a great system that has produced some really groundbreaking results, especially on the men's freestyle side and women's freestyle to a certain degree. But you're just seeing more and more with athletes staying with an RTC and you're seeing the money there and you just have seen the growth since 06 and you just think about his tax returns, what he said compared to now and just the incentives that you can make a really good salary being an athlete. And it's almost like it's about time that this happened, that if you're on the top end, if you're Jordan Burroughs, you're, you're making a really good salary because you have a lot of advertising incentives, which is great. Not many people in wrestling have that lucrative contract, but for that guy that's getting a silver medal, for that Thomas Gilman, for that Dayton Fix, what are you going to be able to make? How can you make a career out of this? And I think that that career path is there, that you can be an athlete. Hey, and you heard it right there. You can't serve two masters. You can't be a coach and an athlete and expect to be effective. You want them to be all in as an athlete. And I think that's the the route to more medals is eliminate the coaching and just let these guys be the athlete for for the time they are. Because think about it, man. You're you're not going to be a basketball player and a coach at the same time. If you're in the NBA, you're an athlete until you're not anymore. And I think the more we can follow that model, the better off we'll be. Yeah. I mean, you laid it out pretty well right there. I mean, looking back to 2014, that year that Jordan Burroughs was an assistant coach in Nebraska. And he talked about the responsibilities of being a husband and a father and, an assistant coach and also a high level competitor. And then the next year he decided, you know what, I'm going back to just being strictly on the wrestling side. I'm just going to be a competitor. I'm not going to coach goes back to winning another world title. We haven't seen him go back and try to double up since. And for good reason, I think didn't Frank Molinaro do the same thing. Just said, I'm getting out of the coaching. Just yeah. go all in with last year at uh, Virginia Tech and went back to just competition mode. Yeah, they're and Kyle Dake's doing it, but uh, they're you know they're guys that are doubling up like David Taylor's running his club too. But and there's just there just aren't a lot of them doing. They used to be the norm. Oh, it it was the way you right? had I mean, to you subsidize had to. yourself. Yeah, you just you had to be in both. And now that we want results, now that there's just more skin in the game, you just have to to pick and choose. And John Smith has said that too. He he's went into being a head coach in '92, and he said if he felt like it would have gone against his athletic career, he never would have done it. And his worst year was when he went into coaching. And it doesn't take too much thought to understand why that is because you have to you have to be all in on something and we don't expect that out of other athletes not saying they can't show a few things or or learn a few things from coaching someone but it can't be your full-time profession a lot of fun talking to bill zadik we will continue to follow that storyline on whether he'll be at the world championships or if he'll be stateside with his newborn baby but a lot of fun talking to him as always for andrew hamilton and his peacoat which we hope we can find i'm kyle klingman you've been listening to track wrestling and on the mat
show is part of the Matt Talk Podcast Network. For more wrestling podcasts, head over to matttalkonline.com.